Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning and welcome to Talkback Gardening on this winter's weekend. Good morning, John. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, gardeners and particularly gardeners that are going to have to find their gumboots if they want to get out <laughs> of the garden this weekend. Yes, in fact, I've bought some gumboots recently. I'll g- give them a good workout this weekend. 100 millimetres of rain here in June. Not often we get... 100 millimetres of rain in June, and I thought, well, that's interesting. I'll take a look at when was the last time that happened. Would you believe it was last June? Isn't that incredible? I spoke earlier in the week, or yesterday, in fact, to the Bureau of Meteorology, and I was surprised to hear that as well. I think someone on the text line has said... Yes, 100 mils of rain on Thursday felt like it, says Steph in Stirling. There are all sorts of people saying, can't believe the amount of rain that we got in such a short period of time. Yes, and... The question will be to ask Darren Ray next week when he turns up with his three months weather outlook is uh, how long before these present conditions disappear and get replaced with that hotter and warmer weather that uh, has been forecast by not just uh, the Bureau of Meteorology but most of the international weather models are all saying the same thing but uh, no sign of it yet. Anyway, uh, let's talk slugs and snails shortly with Michael Nash. He's one of our top entomologists specialising in slugs and snails, looking at it from a farming point of view, from a cropping point of view. And would you believe there are unprecedented numbers of slugs munching away at cereal crops as they emerge out of the ground? We're going to take a look at whether we as home gardeners are going to suffer the same problem shortly. Well, I think we are because I'm getting a lot of texts saying that they are everywhere. Um, <laughs> from Murray Bridge here says, White snails were the worst here ever last summer, out of control, and baited a lot less So now at Murray Bridge, east near Farming Paddock, but I guess they'll be back. Uh, this texter is Margaret, says, Snail bait kills the white snails, but nothing kills the conic snails, huge problem in the southeast. These are all issues we'll pick up with Michael in a moment. Coriant Meadows says they move around on commercial and hobbyists' beehives in big numbers too, from urban to rural areas and back. Uh, Bernadette in Murray Bridge says no snails and no cat in my garden. I encourage lizards and birds. Thank you, Bernadette. Um, no snails, but we always have a blue tongue around, says Marga Athelston. So we've got those natural controllers. Gary also saying, no snails in my Malins garden, but I know we have a resident blue tongue. That could be a reason. Um, Lois at Cherry Gardens is putting forward this proposal that snails come in on the pea straw and uh, any mulch and straw. Uh, Gary and Leslie in Gawler say small white conical snails attracted to our concrete paths here in Gawler and there are so many more. I don't know that I'm going to get to them all but lots of food for thought to put to Michael Nash. We're also going to catch up with Brett Draper a bit later in the program and find out about some of the incredible competitions that are available for uh, you to enter at the Royal Show this year. And I've got a couple of ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away as well. It would be nice to have a blue ribbon on your wall saying, I won this at the Royal Adelaide Show. Have you ever, John? I have never. No, no. I've always been too busy. (laughs) So you haven't really even entered either. No. You're you're uh, down there doing all the broadcasting. That's right. Well, maybe we need to change the situation. Anyway, Brett will talk about that very, very shortly. Snails and slugs. From a farming point of view, there are unprecedented numbers of slugs investing or 
attack. I won't say they attack. Snails don't attack, <laughs> but they certainly cause... Very slowly if they do, that's <laughs> for sure. ...cause mayhem in, in cereal crops, and uh, there's a potential for here for home gardeners. Let's talk to uh, one of our top slug and snail entomologists, Michael Snail. Uh, Michael, Michael Snail. I'm having problems this morning. It's one of those weekends, John. It's one of those weekends. Michael Nash. And the nice thing is that Michael lives here in Adelaide in the Adelaide Hills and is very much aware of our gardening situation. So good morning to Michael. Before we take a look at the white snail problem, the round ones or the conical ones, we just need to take a look at why is it that there are so many slugs in cereal land causing so much problem? I think the wonderful segue was the weather. It's been very wet. If you have a long spring, they breed like crazy. And the conditions have been fantastic, as you say, out in the farming areas, but also in gardens where you're mulching, you're watering all the time. It's been fantastic conditions with this weather. I'm actually really excited. I've been as busy as a one-legged tap dancer (laughs) snug hunting because I call slugs and snails snugs. And if we want to be really technical... Um, There are a few of us in Australia that are experts in this area. There's also the snail whisperer. I'm the snug hunter. But we're actually technically called malacologists. So we love wet springs when it's warm and the snails and slugs can breed like crazy. And because they're long-lived, they come out of the soil and create problems and often catch people unawares. From a farming point of view, okay, it's been wet and so are the gardens. Farmers have changed from cultivating the soil, uh, which used to sort of uh, disturb the the eggs and get rid of the slugs and snails that way, and now they have lots of mulch on the soil. Um, And gardeners are being encouraged to say, put more mulch on the soil. (laughs) Are we uh, headed for problems if we do? I think the snugs are a fantastic bioindicator of gardeners doing a wonderful job improving their soil, improving water holding capacity so they don't have to be watering them all the time so they can cut down their watering bills, and also growing diverse species within their gardens, of course, will favour the slugs and snails. And this, what we call in farming land, Um, out in the paddocks, conservation agriculture has seen farmers increase their yields, be very well adapted to the changing climate and are very good at using the limited water we do get in South Australia. Sorry, John. No, no. Do you anticipate that we are headed for slug problems this season because of uh, the weather we've had and the fact that there's a fair bit of mulch out there? Correct, correct, John. It's, a, it's an interaction between the triple La Nina event, three springs that were very wet, and, of course, these much better conservation farming management practices. And farmers have also changed the pH of their soil, better nutrient availability. All those interactions are being expressed by these wonderful bioindicators that basically everybody's getting it right growing food. The habits of a slug and a snail, I think, are fascinating, and we'll come back to those shortly. 
Deb, I'd like to get people coming in with their questions. Absolutely. And then I would also uh, like to talk to Michael about the slug, uh, the, 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 the white snails. But if you could just encourage a I question or two I'm about to do stage. that right now. If you would like to ring in with a question, we would love you to join us. one three hundred triple two eight nine one is the telephone number. Uh, love your comments on the text line, but questions are best if you ring us in. one three hundred triple two eight nine one. The text line zero. 0467922891 if you download the ABC Listen app and make ABC Radio Adelaide your favourite you can just tap the phone icon and get straight through to us either by text or phone Earlier in the program Deb suggested people send in a text or two as to whether they've got white snails in their garden and whether it's a conical snail or a round snail and the program has been inundated with texts. They're everywhere. It has. Michael Nash, as a, a slug and snail entomologist, does it surprise you that there are so many white snails across Adelaide? No, not really. I mean, they turned up in the early 20s, 1920s. The conical snails actually turned up in about the 1950s. And they're slowly expanding across the region. And... I think some of your listeners have texted in various proposals of how they've got there. That's right. I mean, I'm just, in fact, right in front of me now. Steph says from Bridgewater, my flat white snails came in on straw brought as mulch. Um, as soon as I found some, they were dispatched, and I only have the odd one now. Um, but also, um, this texture is saying they arrived on my property with pea straw used to mulch. So there are recurring themes coming through. And someone did suggest also that they travel around on beehives. Are all of these ideas realities? I think as a slow-moving pest, we almost question ourselves of how fast can a snail actually move, John? They don't have legs. So, but they're hitchhikers. So in Adelaide, they move at 60 kilometres an hour, but out on the open road, they move around at 110 kilometres an hour. <laughs> they are actually what we call hitchhiker species. They move around on things like straw. The other thing we find them in is quite often seed. Because they can survive and hibernate, they'll actually hide in these things for quite some time and we go unnoticed. So it's fantastic the listeners are so observant. This is a classic uh, biosecurity, stopping the problem before it gets into my garden. Fantastic. It's, it's fascinating that we've been encouraging gardeners to mulch and the most popular mulch out there is pea straw. And pea straw, the large quantities of the pea straw is coming in from York Peninsula and the Brossa Valley and that area around there, which, of course, is a haven for white snails. That's correct, John. And so what's happening is, is those snails are surviving the hot, dry summer in the stubble that gets bailed up into straw and then the gardener goes and spreads it on his garden. So, yes, that's a very valid point. Can I just say that Jess on the text line is the exception to the rule and York says, I find it odd that so many people are having trouble with white snails. We're at Wool Bay on York Peninsula surrounded by cereal farms and we've never had an issue with white snails, which are a huge problem for the surrounding crops. Jess, just hang in there. 
Let's maybe you've got some uh, blue tongue lizards, which seem, along with ducks, to be a really good way to control them. The question I need to pose to Michael: snails—they cause problems to farmers, not because of what they eat, or they're eating the seedlings as they come out of the ground. But the bigger problem, of course, is the contamination. They climb up the stems, and when the harvest uh, come, harvester comes along, it, it grabs the snails as well as the grain. That's not a problem for farmers, uh, for home gardeners. Are the white snails a problem for us? A couple of species in particular are the Italian round snail and the small conical snail. Both are very voracious feeders of green material too. Uh, Particularly if you've got grapevines, um, the Italian snail will nip all your buds and severely reduce the amount of grapes you'll get. And seedlings, they are a a problem, like slugs, of your seedlings. And that's why people have to be very vigilant and understand the different species when they start moving about and attack the seedlings or do damage to their flowers and things like that. And in springtime, people will go to the garden centres and there'll be a rush on seedlings and they put them in the ground and along come white snails as well as ordinary snails, what to do? Well, I'd be more actually worried about the naked snails as well, the slugs. Mm. Um, But they should be protecting their seedlings, and that's the thing of trying to plant into warm seed beds. Um, I think Indian runner ducks are fantastic, (laughs) but with (laughs) seedlings they could be a problem because they dig the seedlings up. Um, There's been a lot of... Ideas of using eggshells, coffee grounds, diachotomous earth, all things that act as barriers so they move across them. And, of course, they don't have legs, John, so they've got this um, flat muscle um, foot that they move along on. And, oh, no, I'm on something I don't like. I'm not going to go and eat the seedlings because I might die. (laughs) And the classic of that, of course, would be salt or copper sulphate. So all these things are barriers to to stop them getting to your seedlings. But ultimately, when you've got very high numbers, which is what we expect this season, um, the careful use of a bait, a slug and snail bait, is also part of the arsenal that gardeners can use. Let's take a look at that. Farmers, of course, have access to a large number of different kind of baits available, and they are not available to home gardeners for good reasons. And... I don't like mentioning baits on talkback gardening simply because there's a blue one and a green one and they are pretty uh, diabolical from a pet point of view. Um, Is there a bait that's out there from a home gardening point of view that is going to not cause the pet problems but will control the snail problems or the slug problems? I think it's wonderful with the investment from the grains industry that we have modern products coming from Europe that are birational, and actually there are a couple of products now available that are organic, certified organic, and um, both of those products are used in the truffle industry, and I'm not sure if they're actually for use in the um, domestic gardens just yet, but they're that close, it's, it, it, it's a reality that we will have these organic products. And as long as they're sprinkled out and not left in piles, I think moving forward, industry realises that. There is an organic 
bait which is available for home gardeners, EcoShield, and there's, I think, a, 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 another one on the market as well. They're basically iron. It's just iron. It's just, it's just put in a, in a powdered and, and it's in a form of a little pellet. Uh, how effective, A, is iron in controlling the slug or snail and uh, certainly from uh, a veterinary point of view I've been told it's, 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 it, you don't want your dog or uh, cat eating a whole heap of it but it's, it's, not, it's not as dangerous as the green or the blue one. That's correct and that's a wonderful product you bring up. I, I wasn't sure about mentioning names because I do work for various bait manufacturers so I'm always careful on radio. No, no, I, I, I respect that very yeah. much Michael but um, I, I, I tend to sort of look at the chemicals out there and often when there's only one of them um, I will talk about that particular one because there's not the competition. I'm aware that there are new uh, iron-based products coming onto the market and if the distributors are out there and they're listening, if you let me know, I can give you the information. Exactly. We are Talk Back Gardening this morning. Our very special guest is Michael Nash. We're talking... Well, we say snails and slugs. He says snugs because he's a snug hunter. Um, so if you would like to ask a question, we'd love to welcome your call in on one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Thank you for your many texts. I'd have to say there are so many themes emerging, but the big ones are if you've got blue tongues, ducks or even dachshunds in your house, you've probably got it under control. We'll come back to your questions in just a moment. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Our special guest this morning is consulting slug and snail or snug entomologist Michael Nash who's joining us in the studio and I tell you we've got so many texts I don't know that I'll ever get through them so the problem is far and wide except for a few exceptions. Some people texting through saying they're not in my garden usually it's because of the um, wildlife that's in that garden. Andrew has called in from Mile End on 1300 222 Good morning, Andrew. Uh, good morning. Uh, Michael, I've got um, rodent baiting stations with grain and fodder, um, mouse and rat bait put in there, and the garden snails seem to love it and gorge on them. Yeah, that's... So com- why is the question, is it, Andrew? Why, yeah. yes, <laughs> why? Yeah, um, so... They not only feed on plants, but they also need a source of protein, particularly when they're breeding. And it's very common for us to find particular species of slugs associated with those rat baiting stations. Um, There's one species in particular. um, It's called the cellar slug in the UK. It's also associated with the rat lungworm. So it's actually a vector for a control of rats. Um, But... Yes, they do go for that source. And if I'm trying to breed certain species of snail in the lab, I will actually feed them some dog food. Can I ask, does a slug see the bait or do they smell the bait? How do they know that uh, there's something over there to eat? That's a very good question, John. They have tentacles that have receptors on them, so effectively they smell. But I have my pet hypothesis is that they actually see as well. 
So it's not an easy answer, but they do like searching out novel foods, either by smelling or seeing with their tentacles. And that's why I think Andrew would be seeing them, particularly going to these bait stations. Excellent. And just uh, more reasons why you might not have um, snails in your garden. Chickens are now being proposed by a couple of texters. And this texter says, In Pondy in the late 1980s, round white snails about a centimetre in diameter would rest on upright stalks, exactly as you said, John, um, dozens to each stalk. Currawongs would eat them, but they had to break the shells off. By the end of the 90s, the Karawongs would just swallow them whole, shell and all. <laughs> I don't notice snails on stalks there anymore. Thank you for that. Now, Joan in Greneth, uh, you have got a question about baits. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, everybody. Yes, my question is um, how to get rid of the white snails and still protect the magpies. I think the... Um, thanks for your question, Joan. I, I think it leads back to... John was mentioning about these new iron products that actually break down to being very benign. Um, I think um, they would be a much better option as long as I spread, and particularly the colours that you choose. So some products being blue, but other products are actually a brown colour. Um, they're designed in Europe so the birds can't see them. So these new European products are a colour that the birds don't see. Um, and again, then it's a, just a matter of making sure you put the baits out when the snails are actually actively feeding. Okay, so Joan, does that answer your question? Thank you. Thanks very much for calling in. one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Let's continue the discussion on baits. Many, many years ago, people used to get a heap of of a pellets or bran or whatever it used to be, 265 used to be, see, the one for 30 or 40 years ago, um, and you put it in a heap, um, and, and you have these little heaps of, of, of material around, and I have heard you many times talking to farmers, <laughs> and you say, that's not the way to go. No, it's definitely not. We have to have them actually active and actively feeding, and spread them in a band along your seedlings, don't put them in piles because that also reduces the risk of things like your lizards, which I think are very important, and your birds, like the previous caller in, made the comment, by spreading them out, um, you only need one or two pellets even to kill the greediest brown garden snail. And so spreading them out um, increases the chance of encounter and reduces the off-target effect. Those brown uh, pellets, the ones based on iron, how long do they last and, uh, and remain effective, particularly in showery weather? I think in showery weather, where we get, say, less than 20 mils of rain, I think they're fine. They'll last for two or three weeks easily. Um, particularly these modern products with the granules. Unfortunately, I tipped out 47 millimetres out of my rain gauge. I think that's asking a lot of any product to last that long. But the other thing with the iron products, it's difficult to understand the, how well they've worked because the snails actually go away and die as well. Mm. So again, that also reduces any problems. This is an interesting one for you. Yeah, text has just come through saying, I was recently surprised to see that a fallen lemon lying on a wet lawn was covered in slugs nocturnally. I would have thought that the intense flavours and oils in the lemon zest would have been unattractive to them, but apparently not. 
No, it's actually highly attractive. And actually, if we had escargot and a bit of garlic, I would think that would make fantastic food. (laughs) (laughs) Goodness gracious me. Um, I would like to come back and focus on slugs for a little bit. Now, out there in the garden, you see a little hole appear on the leaf of your favourite plant. You've got coleus or plectransis or some sort, and, and the holes appearing. And you go out there and you look at the plant, tip it upside down. There's not a caterpillar to see. Um, how do we know it's not a caterpillar and it could be a slug? So caterpillars tend to work from the outside and have a very clear, defined edge as they work into the leaf. Yes. If you had, say, lucerne flea, um, it has a spot hole in the middle of the leaf. Slugs and snails tend to rasp, so they have a very different... They don't have a mouth as such. They have a like a rasp. They, they rasp away. So if it's, say, something like your sweet corn that's just coming up, it's very clear. It's this striping, rasping effect along the leaf. The broadleaf plants that you talk about, John, it's a little bit more difficult. But it is, once you get your eye in, it is a very different type of feeding damage to what you see from an insect because they don't have that mouth part that chews. They tend to scrape the green material off. Spring will be when they appear and cause mayhem, but now perhaps is the time to find out whether you've got a slug problem in your garden. Particularly after all the rain, just putting a refuge down or looking under some areas where it's quite cold and damp um, or go out at 11 o'clock at night. Or if you're into technology, put one of those cameras out on time-lapse. <laughs> I've got a time-lapse camera in my garden in the hills. My neighbours must think I'm crazy. And it takes a photo every 30 seconds. And I can often tell, rather than trying to guess on the leaf damage, mm. I can actually tell whether it's a millipede or an earwig or a slug actually chewing my latest crop of broccoli. <laughs> oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I've been with you when you're talking to a group of farmers and saying, right, oh, well, look, uh, you can have these little traps, uh, put things on the ground, and then uh, uh, every couple of days you go and lift up the whatever it is on the ground. Tell us about what home gardeners could do that could be useful to be able to, uh, tra- I mean, not trap them, but at least monitor, know that they have got a slug problem in the garden. I still think my favourite for home gardeners is the beer trap. The trouble is my beer traps never work because I drink all the beer before the slugs get to it. But um, particularly if it's not a rainy night, there's still, and there's commercial ones available, but just a little uh, takeaway container with a tiny bit of beer in the bottom because you don't want to waste all that good quality Cooper's products. But um, having a beer trap, they're actually attracted to um, yeast and brand breaking down and that's why the brand based baits were always so effective um a little bit of porridge under an old off cut of wood is as easy as anything there you go so now you've finally answered why it is that beer works so well because it's that smell of the yeast that they're getting and just coming back to the whole reason why we get them in the first place because so many texters are saying it's coming in my mulch it's coming in my piece drawer it's coming this way jane from leebrook's saying look i have snails appearing on my dwarf kale and suspect they were brought in on the piece drawer bales and sadly we don't have any blue tongues due to the reduction in gardens across leebrook and so and trying to maintain control by removing by hand but how do we check 
if the mulch that we're buying is free from snails, is it possible to do that? I don't think so, no. I think probably you need to know where they're coming from and uh, maybe make sure you tell the garden centre that could you please make sure that uh, this comes from an an area that's not a a major snail problem, although I suspect, Michael, they're right across the state by now and so... That's, that's not going to work. But one thing might be just to report back to where you buy it from that they did have the snails in it in the first place because that would provide valuable information, I imagine. Yes, um, it's a major problem with these hitchhiker species and ants is another one where they come through the garden centres and, and it's, as John rightly said, it, it's basically you have to deal with the problem when it turns up, particularly you get very small conical snails um, they're very hard to detect. The slugs, I think, they come more in your potting mix and in the actual, when you buy your seedlings, you'll get little slug eggs. But again, you'd have to be very vigilant. I think having a garden that's actually resilient to these pests coming in, um, so such as everyone's talked about lizards and ducks and everything, but, you know, I have little geckos running around. I encourage mulching. Um I leave things there, and I know we don't like white ants because white ants, another term is termites, and in Adelaide, termites are a massive problem, but lizards feed on white ants. <laughs> and so if you have your own garden ecosystem and you have a few native plants, we don't find snails or slugs in native vegetation that's good quality, even though it's surrounded by infested farmlands. Wow. You draw heavily from your own observations as you carry out your research. May I just uh, give an example of what's happening in my garden? I have lots of pots, attractive pots, and I put another uh, black pot inside the attractive one. And these are the ones that are being attacked. There are little holes appearing in them. And so I got the plant in the pot and tipped it upside down, took the pot off, and there were the slugs, and they were hiding in the drainage holes of the uh, particular container. And my solution there was just to get a few of the uh, uh, brown organic pellets, and they're spread around the base of the pot that's inside, but the two dogs that I've got can't get to it. And that seems to be uh, one area that... Take a look at the bottom, lift up your pots, have a look to see what's happening. You might see some little caribib beetles. I'd like to get Michael talking about caribib beetles one day. Uh, but uh, uh, So there's the slugs and they're hiding. It's a matter now of going and finding and see whether you can find out where they're hiding. And so forewarned is forearmed. Another technique to get rid of them is, um, according to this, to get the kids out into the garden, see how many they can each find. And this person says, hide your baits by burying a piece of pipe in the garden deep enough for dogs to reach, uh, not to reach into, um, and put the bait in and check often. Uh, And this texter says, my earwig traps, soy, fish sauce and oil have caught many slugs this winter protecting my suffering young kumquat tree. Yes, it's been very interesting. We've had the um, farmers also realise this season that 
Or we've blamed earwigs and slaters a lot for the damage in my paddock and maybe gardeners have the same problem and these slugs that have generally been hiding out, like John says, in these very moist little nooks and crannies that are very difficult to find. Oh, guess what? It's actually rained in Adelaide two years in a row and it's fascinating. We can actually get out and really have a party and feed on every single seedling that they've put in um, and I think it's really important to understand is is that snails and slugs are adaptive strategists and they're loving these environments particularly when it starts raining entomologists are like pathologists they love the extremes in weather and as uh, entomologists are like uh, uh, Michael when it rains it means slugs and snail activity and from a pathologist's point of view it means spots and rots and the grin on their face and it just means that they are interacting with uh, their target audience it's brilliant it is fantastic. Well, Michael, all I can say is someone says here, this guy is very funny. Get him on more often. <laughs> uh, Jim at Hope Valley is reliving the old memories staying out at the farm at Strath and their entertainment was pulling up whorehounds smothered in white snails and uh, taking them off the fence posts as well. And... Kay at Lockley sent through a text saying that a late work colleague, Dr Andrew Butcher, investigated small white snails from Yorks, causing gastric problems in accidental ingestion. Um, and so has sent through an article reflection. Yeah. We'll get Steve to give that to you on the way out. Interesting, yeah. yes. And just one more thing on, on the white snails. That invariably, they are there during winter and as uh, conditions become drier and if you've got citrus, they seem to love climbing up a citrus tree. Is there... And, and people want to know, how can I spray the tree... To get the snails down, and I suppose uh, having listened to you, Michael, maybe we sort of say, why do you want to get them down? They're not going to eat much, maybe. Uh, a comment on that. And, and uh, the solution I have been saying is uh, if you spray the tree with just a, 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 a dilute solution of copper, it uh, might sort of uh, get them off the tree. But uh, I suppose the que two questions is, do you need to get them off the tree? Because are they going to do anything? And uh, I know you're very, very uh, organically aware. And, and, and the use of a copper spray like that uh, as a, a preventative or uh, a deterrent f for snails and slugs. So citrus industry had a big problem with small brown snails as a contaminant into the American market. As the home gardener, I wouldn't be too worried with the odd snail up in the tree. The greedy brown garden snails do defoliate orange trees when they're in ridiculously high numbers, where they're out of control. So as a gardener, I wouldn't be particularly worried if I had a healthy tree and there was only a few snails. Um, yes, copper sulphate, um, I would be actually using a um, product called Oh, it's a cupric oxide, zinc oxide, to be addressing trace element deficiencies. So in a lot of areas where um, lemon trees and kumquat trees and, and, and orange trees are grown in the home garden too, is um, we use iron sulphate, particularly in alkaline soils, which favour the snails. So again, if we're addressing an iron problem, I'd be looking at some sort of iron product like iron sulphate to do exactly what John says. Um, it will drive them out of the tree and act as a repellent. 
It will kill a few of them, but not all of them. The best thing still for snails is you wait for God's water. So when you have a rain front go through, not your sprinkler, but when you know in February um, there's a rain front coming through and you've got garden snails, again, a very careful use of a bait may be warranted if it supports all the other things you're doing to have a, a healthy tree in the first place. Great. Look, we've we've kept you for much too long. <laughs> I know Bernie <laughs> from Brighton's hanging on the line. He wants to ask you if slugs carry disease. We're not going to have time to get to him. Is there a short answer to that? Yes, unfortunately, some species do, and it gets very complicated, hence the other text earlier. Okay. Sorry, Bernie, we're really out of time. But, uh, Michael, it's been fascinating to have you in the studio and um, snug hunter or is that what you call yourself or snug oh, all my friends in southwest victoria call me the snug hunter the yes snug hunter I, I love that i'm going to make sure that we keep that title in here but you are a consulting and um, slug and snail entomologist it's been fascinating hasn't it john I have wheeled Michael Nash around to so many farmer updates and advisor updates many years ago, and it's just lovely to catch up with you again, Michael, and I see that you're still the same brilliant researcher and able to communicate that very, very effective to your target audience. Thank you for your contribution. Thanks, John, for those kind words. Without your mentorship, I don't think I would have ever got past my first GRDC update. <laughs> That's fantastic. There you go, John Lamb. Thanks, Michael. I'm sure we'll have you back in the studio again soon. Michael Nash, and thank you for your many calls and your, <coughs> well, so many texts that I can't possibly get to them, but there were certainly themes uh, that were around there. We are going talk back gardening in just a moment. one three hundred triple two eight nine one. before we catch up with Brett Draper about the the Royal Show competitions and I still have those two ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away. All that lies ahead. This is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. It used to be the case that it was prune in June. We know what John's going to say about roses, but Rudolph in Woodcroft is going to ask the question anyway. Hi, Rudolph. Yes, good morning. It, my roses already shooting new shoots. I wouldn't be doing too much. I think you'll probably find that the buds just are opening and then they'll sit there and do nothing. Um, do they look like they're starting to elo- the buds? Uh, the buds break open and then they do what I call the elongate. The, the stem comes out and starts to grow. Uh, have they? Uh, at what stage are they? Are they just bud opening or are they elongating? Some are opening and some they have leaves already. All right. Well, have you pruned? Obviously, you haven't pruned, so I'd suggest that you prune as as soon as you can. Uh, just bearing in mind that you don't want to do it on a, on a wet day. And probably the most important thing is break up all the leaves afterwards. But if you so prune... it's an exception to prune in June there? Oh, well, the thing is, prune in June is a slogan that was developed for apricot growers. Got nothing to do with anything else in the garden. Um, and it was done prune in June because that was the period when uh, theoretically there would be less spores 
of the uh, gamosis floating around in, in in June, and by and and as you go through winter, you get more spores floating around, and so if you prune uh, in July or August, you're more likely to get spores of gamosis and, and get dieback. But prune in June is for apricot, and my perception is you don't really need to prune your apricots on an annual basis. Once they're mature, just leave them alone. They'll work things out if you need to thin out one or two branches, get some light into the middle of the tree, and that's all you really need to do. So prune June was relevant back in the 1960s when I think Ross Richard was the agronomist up in the but, Riverland that developed that one. Yeah, but for roses, you're saying, you have said, you know, now's not the time, probably not before July, but in the case of Rudolph... Oh, not, no, I'm not saying don't prune your roses oh, now. Okay. No, no, no. I'm just saying is... Um, Make sure you have your roses pruned by the middle of July because yeah. that's when uh, we'll get the situation where the buds are starting to break open and uh, it, it's not the end of the world if you do prune and the buds have actually broken. But ideally, uh, you get them pruned by June rather than in June. Yeah. Oh, sorry, by the middle of July, of July rather than... Uh, Anyway. But in Rudolph's case, now is a good time because it sounds like the roses yeah. are, uh, you know, they don't know what's going on and they're getting ready to come out and to bloom again. So thanks for the call, Rudolph. Really appreciate that. Mary Ann's in Kensington, again on a pruning question, but this time with a mulberry. Hello, Mary Ann. Hi. Yeah, we've got a really large mulberry tree in our front yard um, and we get a huge number of mulberries off it. But uh, it does need a prune and I know you said not to prune in June. We were just thinking that now all the leaves have gone. Um, could we prune it now or should we wait for a while? If you want to prune it to reduce its Size? Yes, size, yes. Don't well, do it now. Not. Don't do it in June. <laughs> Don't do Don't it in do July. It in Don't okay. do it in August. Wait until after the mulberries have matured. You've had a lovely harvest. That's the time if you want to reduce it. If you prune it back hard in winter, it will yes. go back into very strong growth, go back to where it was. If you prune oh, okay. in uh, uh, early December or maybe uh, early autumn, then you'll find that uh, you'll get the shape you want, but you won't get the vigour that you will get if yeah. you prune in June. Okay, because I think we've probably more pruned it in winter and we find that each year it just gets bigger and bigger and we end up with, you know, when it's fruiting, you know, branches on the ground because they're so big. And, <laughs> well, that's why. Uh, <laughs> exactly, I mean, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's, I mean, it's an institution. Everybody prunes their deciduous trees in, in June. Uh, or in winter, and uh, to try and break that po that concept is very, very, very difficult. So don't do it, Marianne. <laughs> You've been warned. Don't do anything for a few months yet. Uh, Wolf in Woodcroft has uh, roses fully in bloom at the moment, but I tell you, somebody who's got an incredible garden, and I bet has got some blue ribbons on the wall. That is Brett Draper. Now, Brett, you are, now. Let me check that you still. This is is your title because um, I've got you as deputy chair of the Horticulture Committee at the Royal Agriculture and Horticultural Society. Is that correct? That's correct, Deb, yes. Excellent. Well, welcome to the program. Before we know it, it'll be showtime. Yeah, would you believe that it's 70 days today until the show starts? No. <laughs> and you know so what happens? Once we get to the show, Brett, Christmas is just around the corner. 
Oh, exactly. You're right. It's almost it's almost there, isn't it? And then before we know it, then the Easter funds will be back in the shops, won't they? So. <laughs> Many people like going to the show and, and looking at the lovely display, and they see these little blue ribbons on uh, uh, the uh, orchids or bonsai or whatever it might be, and there are good. There's a good reason uh, for. Entering the competition. Entering the competition. Yeah. There are so many different categories, aren't there? There are, that's right. And 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 actually winter's actually well, this time of the year when the weather is a bit windy and inclement outside is actually a really good time to look at some of the sections that are in the horticulture uh, competition. The the entries are now open and they're only open for another four weeks. They actually close on the twenty first of July. Um, and there's a whole range of sections that people can look at entering into. And whether it's something like a, a, uh, a camellia or a daffodil or a bonsai or an Australian native uh, cut, like maybe a, you know, a banksia um, or a grevillea or something like that, there's a whole selection um, of categories that people can enter into. And there's obviously far more that we can go into to detail here. Um, but now's a good idea to, to, to jump online um, and actually have a look um, at all of the um, sections that are there. Um, and look, if you know that you've got a clump of daffodils, for instance, or, an, or a nice japonica camellia um, um, that will be flowering, you can actually go through and, um, and, and select one of the classes that will, that will match that particular variety that you can then enter into the competition. Okay, so you go online, you say, I'm going to put in uh, uh, an entry in this particular area. What yes. happens then? Uh, do, do you have to pay? You do. There is, an, there is a small entry fee for the competition, John, but obviously for that there are some great prizes. I mean, if, if you're lucky enough to win a, um, a, a placing, a first, second or a third, you'll, you'll obviously receive a ribbon. But for, for, for some of the categories, there's some really good prize money. And if you're lucky enough to, to win a champion, you can get some really, really good rewards um, either through prize money or through a... Um, uh, for one of our sponsors, a, a voucher for, for particular products, you know, valued to, to, in some cases, up to a couple of hundred dollars, which is quite an incentive. I have friends that said they'd love to enter something into the show, but they mm -hmm. think it's too difficult. How do I get the uh, orange or whether it might be a, a flower or a bulb or a yep. bonsai, how do I get it and put it on display? Right, John. Yeah. Well, the, it, look. If if you're and, and most a lot of our horticulture competitions are actually staged and judged whilst the show's on. If your um, particular section is um, judged on a day of the show, you receive an entry ticket um, with your um, entry when you place your when you enter the competition. You get an entry ticket, um, and you get access to the Rose Terrace Car Park One, um, which is just outside the Goyder Pavilion, which allows you. To come in early between you know between 8 a.m. and we say between 8 a.m. and 9:30, but you've actually got up until 11 to stage it in case something happens. Um, and it's a very short walk into the Duncan Gallery, into the Goya Pavilion to actually stage your exhibit. And then when you're in there, we have stewards on hand in that section, which can help you find your the the actual place or your your um, exhibit card on where to stage your exhibit and actually. Um, guide you through how to stage it. You need to, to to stage your own exhibit, but they can give you any guidance in terms of if you've got any questions. Um, that that because sometimes it can get a little bit complicated. So it's nice to have somebody there with a bit of experience that can help you guide you through that. Yeah, well, a couple of great reasons that you could enter just to get into the show and to get a car park there and to get that guidance. So that if you're a newbie, <coughs> you'll know what to do next year. 
Well, absolutely. And if you are a newbie, when you're looking through the prize schedule, if you look for the novice classes, so there'll be open classes and novice classes. If you look for the novice classes, they're for people that haven't won an award at the show first or a first-time competitor. And so your entry will be up against people um, in the um, same boat. In the same boat yeah. as well. And it's a good camaraderie. You, you're there and you can chat to people as well and you can see what they're doing. And I've done it with my my entries. You put it in, you think that's not quite right. And you look at the one alongside and you think, actually, if I just turn that flower a little bit and just stage it a little bit higher or lower. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, is, it is quite competitive, but it's really a lot of fun. Oh, well, you know all the tricks of the trade, Brett. You've got the blue ribbons to prove it. But look, thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you again um, over the coming uh, weeks now rather than months ahead of the Royal Show. So thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, Brett Draper, Deputy Chair of the Horticulture Committee at the Royal Agricultural and Horticultural Society. Get online, have a look and enter if you haven't given it a go before. And I tell you what, if you haven't won anything from ABC Radio Adelaide in the last month and you'd like to get your hands on an ABC Gardening Australia magazine, call now, 1300 222 this is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. We're on our way to Port Broughton now. John, you've got a question about sawdust. Yes, I've got a workshop and as a consequence I've got several kilos of sawdust. I'm wondering if I can spread that over my garden bed or uh, I'm about to put in a raised garden bed can I put it in the bottom of it? It's not a good idea to use sawdust by itself in large quantities. What happens is that it's got to be broken down and it takes a long time to break that sawdust down by the little microbes and they require a fair amount of nitrogen fertiliser to be able to carry out that function. And so I can remember many, many years ago there was a large section of the native gardens where had the paths there and they had sawdust right throughout the paths and they found after about five or six years the trees were getting an iron deficiency because of uh, the fact that uh, the nitrogen just wasn't being made available and they had to take up all the the sawdust and put something else down there. So I'd suggest don't do it. If you want to use it, compost it. Put it into your compost if you possibly can or if you've got a large quantity, you put it in a heap and mix it up with other things, leaves and uh, weeds and make a a semi-compost of it and break it down, semi-break it down and then if you're going to use it at a mulch, make sure you're using some chicken manure pellets at the same time. Put the pellets down and then put your uh, uh, semi-decayed sawdust come other materials uh, on top of that and that should overcome the, the deficiency of nitrogen in that particular problem. Thanks, John. Very interesting question. Patricia's in Hallett Cove. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Deb and John. Um, My question is about some um, dolomite that I bought to put into my summer garden, veggie garden. Um, And when I got it home, I realised it was dolomite lime, not just dolomite. Is that all right to spread just to keep the the calcium going? 
Uh, that's uh, calcium, magnesium, carbonate. Uh, no, no, you'll increase the pH of the soil, so you don't want oh, that. I see. Ra- rather than that, use gypsum. If you, you, if you <laughs> do a swap, or yeah, don't use it on your garden. I, I suspect uh, in, in South Australia, gypsum is far more effective than dolomite. Okay, sorry Patricia, might be one to take back if you haven't opened it up already. Congratulations to Jill in Pasadena and Marlene in Huntsfield Heights who have won our ABC Gardening Australia magazines. So John, what are you going to be doing in the garden this weekend given that we're expecting, although it looks beautiful out the window at Collinswood at the moment, but we're expecting some uh, more wintry weather. I'm going to take some late cuttings of coleus, would you believe? Um, It's not the right time for doing it, but uh, by taking cuttings now, and I've got a little heated uh, uh, greenhouse so I can get them established and they'll be little plants and by this t- by next autumn they'll be display plants and by putting them out as display plants in autumn uh, they're still young and virile and the, the, they'll go right through winter as the, my display of coleus at the moment they're not affected by the cold and they'll stay there in colour probably until about August and at that stage I'll have a, a new lot of coleus coming on. How beautiful great thing to be doing in the garden this weekend and recommendations certainly don't go pruning unless you've got at least six or seven hours of dryness after the pruning and the other thing is if you're planting your fruit trees and roses new bare rooted roses again don't do it if the soil is wet Uh, let it dry out a little bit before even if you have to sort of put your plants on hold until we do get a patch of drier weather which I'm sure we're going to get and Darren Ray will tell us all about that next Saturday he sure will so stay tuned for that one until next week Good gardening.